0: following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Starting last Sunday, we jumped into this series for the summer in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've titled it Life Under the Sun. And today we want to look at chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 26, and it's a bit of an extended passage. So for a scripture reading this morning, I really only want to focus on verses 12 through 15 at the beginning, and then we'll look at the remaining verses as we unpack the sermon together. And it reads in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Let's pray. Lord, we direct our attention to your holy word and ask with a humility and a a solemnity and a a real teachability that we come hungry to learn and to be changed by that word. And so would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, penetrate to the depths of our heart um, and to challenge some of our deepest preconceptions of what you are like and, and what you desire of us and to, out of that... Uh, deconstructing in our heart to reconstruct uh, a life that is centered around Christ, a life that is understanding of what you desire and what you want for us. For we pray these things in Christ's name, Amen. As so I pointed out in that first sermon, the wisdom books in the Bible are unique compared to almost all other literature if you look at just about every other book in the Bible what you find is that they are either books that are God's Word directly to us this sort of idea of thus saith the Lord books like Romans and Ephesians and all of Paul's letters or Isaiah and Daniel and these Old Testament prophets these are basically messages to us from God the other broad category are basically books that describe God's actions So we have books like Genesis and Ruth and Esther and Acts, which we've been just going through as well. And these are books that basically we look and see what God has done through the lives of people like Paul and Peter and Moses and Abraham, and we get a direct message about this is who God is. But when you get to the wisdom books like Proverbs and Job and Song of Solomon and the book that we're studying right now, Ecclesiastes, it doesn't quite work that way. Instead, as we said last time, what the wisdom books are asking us to do is look at God's creation. Look at the world as you see it empirically. And then by looking at his creation, learn something about the God who created this world. We've titled the series, Life under the sun. The author is this man who calls himself the preacher. And basically he is undergoing a long journey in search of the meaning of life. Or life under the sun, as the preacher will say over and over again. And when he uses this phrase 29 times in this book, life under the sun, what he means basically is this. It is not life as it is supposed to be. It is not life as we expect it to be, but it is life as we actually experience it, with all of its messiness and contradictions. Is God really in control of everything under this life under the sun? Well, the preacher says, at times it sure doesn't seem like it. Is there really a purpose to everything that happens in life, like MH17 that went down in Ukraine? Well, if there is, I sure can't seem to figure it out most of the time. Are the righteous really blessed by God while the wicked go punished? Well, you could have fooled me because that's not life under the sun as I see it. This is life under the sun. And this is not the casual pursuit of an armchair philosopher, but this is a man that is in desperate need for answers in his life, for understanding, for knowing what the meaning of life is all about. And it seems even wrong, even taboo to talk like this, doesn't it? it when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like, you know, proper Christians don't ask those questions. You, you're venturing into territory that you should stay away from. But if Christianity is the truth that we claim it to be, we cannot be afraid of questions like the ones that the preacher asks. Over and over again, the preacher repeats this phrase, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And that word literally means a mist or a vapor and in essence what he is saying is life is like a vapor it's like smoke it's like a puff of air because in one instant it's there and in the next it's gone life is also like a vapor because it's so elusive you try to grasp the meaning of life you try to unpack it and wrap your mind around it but just when you think you're beginning to understand the meaning of life it's like trying to grab smoke It just slips right through your fingers and you open your fist and it's empty. I think the truth is this, when you're younger, life seems pretty straightforward. Life seems pretty ordered, doesn't it? But the older you get, the more you realize how complicated things are, how things are not as you once thought they were. Tim Chaddock writes this, we all write our autobiographies long before we live our lives. Sure, we make some edits and revisions along the way, but even in our youth, we quickly develop ideas of how things should go, how our lives ought to play out. This vision of our life stories helps us determine and then track our dreams, goals, and expectations. After all, we all are living for something, right? I think it's very insightful what Chaddock says is, you know, we ask that age, to, that question to the youngest of kids. Johnny, Sally, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's amazing to me that even five-year-olds usually throw something out there, and it's usually something like, I want to be an astronaut, or I want to be a fireman, or I want to be a ballerina, or something like that. But the truth is, we're all writing our autobiographies, aren't we, based on how we think life is going to work. But the problem is, once you start living life, and as you enter into adulthood, you look back at those earlier fairy tales, and you say, oh, my God, this is not what I thought life was going to be at all. And the question I think that the preacher is asking is, how do you make sense of all of the randomness, all of the chaos, all of the U-turns and misdirections? How do you make sense of a world that at times feels like it's falling apart at the seams and nothing is making sense? There doesn't seem to be order. It just seems to be chaos. Well, before we go into the passage for this morning, I want to show you a brief introductory video. It's a movie clip, a video clip from this documentary called I Am. And this video was, this, this uh, documentary was basically directed and produced by this guy, Tom Shadiak. You might not recognize his name, but he's actually a very successful Hollywood director, made some of the biggest blockbuster comedies that you've seen and re- that, that have. Uh, that I'm sure almost all of you have probably seen. He ended up going through this uh, life-altering experience, though, that radically changed his perspective on life, and I just wanted to show that for you for a few minutes.
1: My name is Tom Shadiak. I'm a movie director, comedies mostly. That's me there, the guy who can't dance. I made Jim Carrey talk out of his Got Eddie Murphy to don a fat suit I turned Steve Carell into the fifth member of ZZ Top And got Robin Williams sporting a clown nose But this is a different story This is my story And it's a story about mental illness But let's not get ahead of ourselves What's the director of Bruce Almighty and Ace Ventura doing in the serious world of documentaries? Trust me, I would have been completely content to make another laugh fest and go on with things as usual. But something happened to me that was anything but usual and forced me to rethink my priorities and take a sharp turn into uncharted territory. A broken hand and a nasty concussion turn critical when I developed post-concussion syndrome, a condition where the concussion symptoms don't go away for months, years, if ever. When that head injury occurs, often there's an experience of depression that follows and with that depression comes an experience of someone being suicidal. The multiple on-field concussions suffered by former NFL safety Andre Waters led to his depression and his suicide in November. My symptoms were brutal, an intense sensitivity to light and sound, severe mood swings, and a constant ringing in my head that wouldn't go away. Traditional medicine was no help, so I turned to alternative therapies like biofeedback and hyperbaric oxygen. But the cold hard fact was that nothing seemed to work. After several months of what I can only describe as torture, I welcomed death. I wasn't suicidal like many of the PC patients are, but the plain fact was, I was done. Facing my own death brought an instant sense of clarity and purpose. If I was indeed going to die, I asked myself, what did I want to say before I went? It became very simple and very clear. I wanted to tell people what I had come to know. And what I had come to know was that the world I was living in was a lie, and the game I had won at which I thought would help to heal the world, might very well be what was destroying it.
0: I think one of the fundamental messages in the American
1: marketing machine is that wealth and happiness are synonyms. You want happiness? You have to have wealth, and you have to buy stuff, you know, own lots of stuff.
0: There ain't no reason things are this way How they always been and they intend to stay I can't explain why we live this way We do it every day People walk around pushing back their debts Wearing paychecks like necklaces and bracelets Talking about nothing, not thinking about death. Every little heartbeat, every little breath But love will come, set me free
1: Now, I didn't always have stuff or the money to buy stuff. When I started out, I struggled like most artists, but I finally got a directing break when I took a chance on a guy who at the time was known as the white guy on In Living Color. (laughs) My world changed overnight. And well, I kinda went shopping. First, I bought a little 7,000 square foot house in the hills of Beverly, swimming pools, movie stars. Your choice for favorite comedy motion picture is...
0: The Nutty Professor Liar Liar. Bruce Almighty!
1: And when more film success came my way, I bought a bigger house. And more stuff. I was flying privately everywhere, vacationing, looking for properties. But something odd happened to me when I moved into my first Beverly Hills house that kind of took the edge off my buzz. I was standing alone in the entrance foyer after the movers had just left, and I was struck with one very clear, very strange feeling. I was no happier. There I was, standing in the house that my culture had taught me was a measure of the good life, and it made me absolutely no happier. Hmm. Interesting. You know, these foundational notions of, of our relationship to stuff are, are grounded on a truth and a lie in our culture. The truth is that if you're naked and cold at night, outdoors, all alone, in the forest, and it's raining, you are unhappy. (laughs) We can all agree on that. And if somebody, you know, opens the door and says, come on in, here's a fire you can sit next to, here's clothing you can put on, here's a blanket, here's a warm place to sleep, here's a bowl of soup. Suddenly you go from being unhappy to happy with very little stuff, but it's stuff that makes the difference, just like that. So that's the truth. The lie, then, is, well, if this amount of stuff will make you that happy, then ten times as much stuff will make you ten times happier, a hundred times as much stuff will make you a hundred times happier, a thousand times as much stuff will make you a thousand times happier, and Bill Gates lives in a state of perpetual bliss. So it's a psychological problem
0: because, you're right, because it's not the reality. The reality is that, you know, if you have two billion instead of one billion, you're not twice as happy.
1: But people are driven, driven to accumulate Accumulate, accumulate, without asking the question of will this make me happy or not. So I found that a lot of people were unhappy, um, even though they seemed to have everything, even though they seemed to be doing or living that American dream.
0: Shadiak's story is interesting. You know, in one minute, he's on top of the mountain. He has basically fulfilled even his wildest dreams of success as a movie director. And yet, standing on that mountaintop, uh, in the next instant, he's wondering if he wants to live anymore and if life is worth living. And confronted by his own mortality, Shadiak begins to ask questions that he's never asked of his life before. Like, I've achieved all of my greatest dreams But was I dreaming all the wrong dreams? What's the meaning of it all? How do I find true happiness? He thought he had achieved fulfillment. But instead, when he reached that mountaintop, all he felt was emptiness. And it's similar to this journey that the preacher finds himself on, this quest to discover life's purpose. And he will leave no stone unturned until he finds an answer that will satisfy his heart, And the first place that the preacher starts is with wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, it reads, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, the preacher thought that he could find the answer to the meaning of life by learning, by studying, by getting more knowledge. That maybe by learning and understanding how the world works, he would find some degree of comfort, some degree of understanding, that those answers that he would gain from that knowledge would sort of unlock the mysteries of the world to him. And he would figure it all out and he could finally reach bliss, finally be in a state of happiness and contentment and peace. But after all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge, all the books that he read, he said, At the end of the day, it wasn't greater peace. It wasn't a calmness that settled in my heart. He says, It was vexation, it was disturbance, it was anxiety. Why? Because in essence, as he's going to say later, because even if you know all of this, you, know, you can't do anything about it. You, you can't really... You, one person is only so powerful to really change the world or to do anything about the things that you see. Now, the preacher doesn't say that wisdom is therefore useless. He actually says wisdom is better than ignorance. In chapter 2, verse 13, goes on and says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. In other words, it's better to be a person who is wise and walking in the light than a fool walking in darkness. Ignorance is not a virtue. But then right after that he says, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In other words, what the preacher realized in his quest was this that wisdom is good, but it is limited in what it can actually do for us. Another way I could say it is like this the meteor that you predicted six months ago would hit the earth is gonna kill you, just like it's gonna kill the guy standing next to you who still thinks the world is flat. It's just that for six months your life is miserable, while that guy is living in bliss and in ignorance. You see, what I'm saying is, is what I think the preacher is saying is, is this. The world is often indiscriminate in its brutality. And wisdom cannot do much about that brutality. Wisdom alone, in other words, doesn't save the day. In fact, the truth is, it often makes those who bear that wisdom more miserable. Because you see that freight train coming. And you can't do anything about it. Well, he moves on then in his pursuit from wisdom to pleasure. It says in chapter 2, verse 1 and onward, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, and the, the delight of children of men. That's essence, the preacher says, from humor to alcohol to projects and hobbies to enormous wealth to sex, he says, I indulged in it all. I made myself um, the recipient of Of every single possible pleasure that I could envision and yet he said uh, at the end of it there was still that nagging emptiness that he felt when you read this you you sort of hear the sense of entitlement that accompanies this pursuit of pleasure in essence saying I worked hard for my life I achieved what I achieved in life by my hard labor and therefore I enjoyed the fruits of that labor by being able to pleasure myself in whatever I wanted. But even after all of that, his conclusion was, it just didn't do it for me. It just didn't work. You know, I had shared with you guys some years back, uh, actually, this is, we'll just skip this part, that's fine. Um, this time in 2003 when I was in Ethiopia and It was a rainy day, and this is not the actual picture of the hut that I'm describing, but just put in a a stock image there because it's kind of similar. But, uh, you know, just out in these remote villages in the middle of nowhere, this rainy evening, and seeing this little hut in the middle of nowhere, walking up to this hut, and there was a little boy in there with a blanket around him, shivering, and there was nothing else in the hut except a few pots and pans, and then a little fire And he had this uh, kerosene lantern that was dimly lighting the room. And I remember coming there as an American, looking at this kid, and thinking like, if this was the sum of my life, would this life be worth living? (laughs) And I don't know why that thought crept into my head, but I thought like, could I live like this kid? Would this life be livable? Would it be enjoyable? Because he has no electricity. He has no modern plumbing or flush toilets. He has no internet. He has no social media. He has no television, no movies, no shopping malls, no restaurants, no takeout. Nothing. Just a room with a kerosene lantern and a blanket in the rain. And you know, here's the truth is, I don't think any of us are really honest with the degree to which these little amusements keep us going in life, you know? Uh, Whether it's your little iPhone apps, or checking your Facebook friends, or catching up on your favorite TV series on Netflix. You know, I I think we like to think of these things as just distractions. But if we're really honest, I, I think actually the truth is, it's where we find our happiness. It's what makes life livable, to get through the end of a tough work week and know you could crash and amuse yourself with these things. I've talked about this before, but one of the interesting phenomena that seems to me has arisen in our generation is this whole idea of binge television watching. I think it first started with the rise of these DVD sets for your favorite TV shows, and then it got on hyper mode with Netflix, right, and Amazon Prime and all of this, right, that you literally can catch up entire seasons of your favorite TV series in a matter of a few days. And how many of you have ever done that? Have you ever gone on a television marathon? I don't know how many of you admit it, but I know I've done that. Do you know that feeling after you get done watching an entire season in two days? Do you know that really guilty, gross feeling that you have? after you have not showered, or called anyone, or opened the curtains. Um, Here is the problem, though, with life in America, is that when you feel gross like that, and feel like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? The problem is, rather than it awakening in us something deeper that says, why am I doing this? Why do I do this with my life? Instead, in America, the problem is, when you feel gross like that, you just direct your attention to some other amusement. And you go, I'm not watching any more TV for the next two months. Because now you drown yourself in video games. Or you decide, i got to get exercise, so you do sports. You see? Or you go on vacation. In other words, what I'm saying is, like Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, there's just so much at our fingertips to drown ourselves from one distracting amusement after another. And instead of it causing something deeper in us to say, what's going on in my heart? And instead, we avoid the real problem. And we just drown ourselves because that nagging emptiness, that nagging boredom keeps chasing us. And the easiest way to run away from it is by finding something else that's novel and interesting and new to distract you. But true wisdom is to understand that worldly pleasures never provide lasting enjoyment. Well, the final thing that the preacher turns to in his quest after he gives up on wisdom and pleasure is work. In chapter 2 verses 18 to 23 it reads, I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So he turned about and gave my heart up to despair So he thought, maybe if I find meaning in my career, if I do something great with my life, something of significance, if I build something that will last, then I could, at least I could go to my grave feeling good about my life. And he says, but the more you think about that, even that is ridiculous. Because how can you know that you can guarantee the things you built in your life will last? He says, you know what? When you die, you don't have any control over that. You hand your entire estate, everything you worked so hard for all your life, and you give it to what very well may be a deadbeat. And this is unfortunately one of the dirty things that happens with inheritances, isn't it? Is the son of a millionaire never had to work a day in his life for that wealth. And we see that happening over and over again of heirs and heiresses literally blowing entire fortunes, buying yachts and other play toys and everything like that, mansions. And he says, you know, that's just the way life works, is you want a legacy through your work even. He said, there's no guarantee of that. You know, whoever you have to hand this stuff off to may very well squander it says you work and you work and you work, always dreaming about what you're going to do in your retirement. And then you finally get old enough to retire with your nice little comfortable nest egg. And frankly, you've got arthritis and you've got back problems. And now you've got heart trouble and diabetes. And you're too weak and too old and infirmed to enjoy that retirement. And he says, so was it worth it? Was that dream of that retirement worth it? Are you really living your golden years? And he looks at that and he says, it's all ridiculous. It's all absurd. It's all pointless. So he goes from wisdom to pleasure to work. And none of these, the preacher realizes, is going to provide the fulfillment and the meaning that he's seeking in life. In fact, all of these things have only led to unfulfilled promises and greater pain. And so this conclusion that he reaches after all of this may come as a bit of a surprise to you. It's not what you would expect for him to say. But he says this in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, when you read these words, it's very easy to think that what you're hearing is a rather cynical, if not fatalistic, motto, something like, hey, listen, I've seen it all and done it all, and at the end of the day, this is my conclusion. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we all die. Right? But that is not what the preacher is saying. It also sounds like the preacher is contradicting himself. Because a little while earlier, he just got done ranting about the meaninglessness of pleasure and how you could chase after it all your life, and yet it will always leave you empty, and yet his conclusion seems to be, so live it up and enjoy life. But that's also not what he is saying. He's not doing a 180 and now contradicting himself. If you read his words more carefully, he's actually saying something rather different. The preacher is saying this, what I have learned from this long quest to find meaning in life is this, that ultimate meaning cannot be found in these things like wisdom and pleasure and work. But his, the heart of his message is this, if you try to find ultimate meaning through wisdom, pleasure, and work, you will always be disappointed. But if you receive these things as God's gifts, you can enjoy them as he intended. You see, because I think what the preacher discovered is this. When God is not in our lives, the natural tendency is to turn these things into idols, to try to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in them, which is something that they can never do. But when you find God and realize that your relationship with Him is the only thing that can give you lasting fulfillment and purpose in life, in other words, when God becomes the rightful center of your life, then all of these other things also end up taking their rightful place in your life. And then for the first time, you can actually enjoy your life the way that it was meant to be enjoyed. We can actually Enjoy the things that are given to us by God, whether it's work or play or wisdom and knowledge, without turning them into idols. That's why he says, apart from God, who can eat or have enjoyment? And here's the question that I want to sort of wrap up the message with today. How do you know if you're truly living with God in the center of your life? How do I know if I'm really living that life and I would argue, based on what Ecclesiastes is saying here, this is the answer. Whether learning, relaxing, or working, you are fully present, living in the moment. Now, again, that might seem kind of confusing, but I don't, I don't really see the logic there. But let me see if I can unpack it for you a little bit and get to the heart of what I want to share with you this morning. I, I want to share with you a story that John Orprick shared about his own life that I think captures this meaning of living in the moment well. Some time ago, I was giving a bath to our three children. I had a custom of bathing them together more to save time than anything else. I knew that eventually I would have to stop the group bathing, but for the time being, it seemed efficient. Johnny was still in the tub, Laura was out and safely in her pajamas. And I was trying to get Mallory dried off. Mallory was out of the water, but was doing what had come to be known in our family as the Dida Day dance. This consists of her running around and around in circles, singing over and over again, Dida Day, Dida Day. It is a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. When she is too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has to dance to release her joy. So she does the Dida Day. On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry. I prodded. So she did. She began running in circles faster and faster and chanting, Dida Day more rapidly. No, Mallory, that's not what I mean. Stop with the Dida Day stuff and get over here and I can dry you off. Hurry. Then she asked a profound question Why? I had no answer. I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, no meetings to attend, no sermon to write. I was just so used to hurrying, so preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another that here was life, here was joy, here was an invitation to the dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. Reflecting on this afterward, I realized that I tend to divide my minutes into two categories, living and waiting to live. Most of my life is spent in transit, Trying to get somewhere, waiting to begin, driving someplace, standing in line, waiting for a meeting to end, trying to get a task completed, worrying about something bad that that might happen, or being angry about something that did happen. These are all moments when I am not likely to be fully present. Not to be aware of the voice and purpose of God. I am impatient. I am almost literally killing time, and that is just another way of saying I am killing myself. Drawing off the kids was just something I was trying to get through. Can you relate to Orpbrook's confession? Whether you're working or relaxing, do you often find yourself distracted, unable to joy enjoy these little moments in life? I think there's a lot of reasons why we're not fully present. much of our life and unable to enjoy these little moments. I think for a lot of us, it's about dissatisfaction. You always find something to complain about in any situation. Something that isn't meeting your expectations. Something that's always going wrong. And as a result, you're never thankful for the things that are right in front of you. Instead it's always complaining, problem solving. You're always trying to fix everything. You feel like it's all up to you to make everything right. Feeling the pressure to right every wrong and solve every problem. And as a result, you're unable to trust God and just leave it in his hands. You're filled with worry and fear. You're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Anticipating the worst. Afraid of what's waiting around the corner so that you cannot even enjoy the present because of tomorrow. And This is what I'm saying. When God is not at the center of your life, it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're on a date night with your spouse or trying to play with your children or doing your daily devotions or you're trying to wrap up a busy work day. the truth is this, you're never really fully there. You're never really fully present. And even if you are there, it's, you're just distracted. You're there in body, but you're not there in heart. Your mind is somewhere else. And you, as a result, can actually never really enjoy the moment. There's really no celebration or thankfulness in your heart. Because the truth is, you're at the center of your universe. And whether it's work or play or study, it's all about you and what you feel like you have to do to make your life work for you. In contrast to that, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ and these great promises of his. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. First Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burden, and I will give you rest." This is what it means to live a life centered on God, is to claim His promises and trust that His care for you will win the day. And when we truly do that, we can seize the moment. We can carpe diem. We can live in that moment and celebrate it, and enjoy it because we know our rightful place in the universe. We know that we are not God but we are merely His servants. And out of that understanding, that profound understanding that I live in a world that God has created and His care for me will cover me, that then suddenly frees me to enjoy the little moments of life and not feel like I have to fix everyone and fix every circumstance and change everything and say, listen, this is simply the day that God has given me and I will rejoice in it and I will celebrate it, and I will exult in it, and I will rest in it, and I will be content, and I will be thankful. Jeffrey Myers writes this. Do not be surprised to find yourself in a frustrating situation from which you cannot escape by means of controlling it. Not everything can be fixed. Not everything is a problem to be solved. Some things must be born, must be suffered and endured. Wisdom does not teach us how to master the world. It does not give us techniques for programming life such that life becomes orderly and predictable. Who knows why things happen? Often trying to figure it out is simply chasing after the wind as if we can catch and contain it. One can only hope and believe. Rejoice in what God has given you to do and trust in Him. This is the perspective of faith. Christian wisdom advocates celebration Rejoicing and enjoying what God has given you to enjoy. Solomon's advice is for you to cherish the small gifts that come your way from God. Man's true lot in this world is not primarily understood in terms of hard work, but in joyous reception of the gifts of God. Approach life receptively. Enjoy God's gifts as they unfold. You see when you put your trust in God, you can be fully present because you know that God is in control and that he's gonna take care of you. You can seek truth and be learned without fear because you worship a God who is ultimately wise and not afraid of your questions and even your doubts. You can rejoice in the work that you're doing because ultimately you know that you are serving God and not man and you know that your worth is not defined by your productivity. You can be content and even thankful in difficult circumstances because you know that there is a greater purpose to everything that God allows in your life. And lastly, you can enjoy life's little pleasures without allowing them to control you because your heart has been won over by the only one that will give you lasting joy. And so you can celebrate and enjoy pleasure without idolizing it and chasing after it for ultimate meeting. Let's pray. As we uh, close in prayer and get ready for going to the picnic, um, yeah, I think this picnic is actually kind of interesting. You know, we're going to, just in a few minutes here, I'll head into our cars and drive over to the nearby park. But in some ways, I, I would say that this picnic might even be a good test case for us. In that it's supposed to be fun, but I know some of you are going to be really stressed out. Gee, I wonder if anyone's going to talk to me, you know, maybe, this church is so unfriendly, you know, and like, I'm just going to sit here and wait and see if anyone's going to approach me, because I bet you they won't, you know, or we could sit there and think like, oh my goodness, you know, like you're in charge of the food, you know, oh no, no, I don't know if there's enough food, I don't know if there's enough food, and you can panic, or, oh, it's too hot, why didn't they pick a place with more shade, and this is so unwise, (laughs) you know, this this is the human heart. This is you and I on a daily basis. And we're never really fully present. We're never really in the moment. We're always fretting, always frustrated, always complaining, always griping, always angry. I want you to instead envision a life of power, a life centered on the gospel, a life of faith in which you realize that these things can never ultimately provide ultimate meaning. In my life, only Christ can. And having met Christ, my Savior, who died for me, I don't have to save the world. I don't even have to save my family. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to fret or worry or complain. But I can simply arise to every new day and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I think the truth is this. For some of you, even though you claim to be a follower of Christ, it's been a really long time since you've really walked in that joy. Because you're always playing problem solver. You're always complaining about the cup half empty. And you're not letting God be God. And you to recognize your rightful place in the universe. And could I maybe invite you to maybe pray a confessional prayer to the Lord right now? Just say to Him, I want that joy. I want that humility. I want that trust. I want to know that celebration, the thankfulness. I can't even remember the last time I genuinely felt thankful for anything. I want to know that, Lord. And the only way that I'm going to experience it is not by ratcheting up the pleasure. It's about surrendering to God. Letting control be His. And just receiving like a child the things that he wants to give to you. So that like John Orperg's daughter, you can actually dance, you can celebrate, you can have a dee day and say, you know what, things aren't so great in my life. I'm not being a fool about this. There are some very real challenges in my life, some real pain. But even in those challenges, even in those that pain, I choose to celebrate my God who has control of my life. And I will choose to act in faith rather than fear and live in this moment and receive it as His gift to me. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to close us in a time of response.